Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 511, Cosmic Change. What did Jesus mean when he was talking about hiding our light under a bushel? And does it matter if there isn't one right answer to that question? How can we, as salt and light, engage with the world around us? And what did Jesus mean by him coming to fulfill the law? We're going to look at these things and more in our continuing study of the Sermon on the Mount. But first, if you're watching this on YouTube, do us a favor. Go ahead and share this episode, if you could, on your favorite social media platform. If you use the hashtag ImpactNations, you will automatically be entered to win a $40 gift card. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, uh, why don't you go ahead, give us a five-star review. That helps us to get the word out. It helps more people discover the Impact Nations podcast. And the more people listening means I believe more people are going to be blessed by this teaching. Thanks again for joining us. And here is the continuing study of the Sermon on the Mount. Hi, everyone. Good to be together again. Uh, We're well into our series on the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, this is week 11. And uh, and this week we're going to be looking at a passage that that really pivots from the Beatitudes into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just read you the passage, the first one. Um, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's... Matthew 5:13-16 I came to Christ in the Jesus movement, the Jesus people movement of the 70s. It was a very very exciting time and uh, it seemed like the gospel was just being shared all over the place. As I uh, as I moved into the 80s, I was really challenged by this passage. Of being salt and light, but I saw it in a pretty limited way, almost exclusively as being about evangelism and witnessing. Um, for me, being salt and light, to be honest with you, largely meant handing out tracks, which, by the way, was not very successful. Uh, tourist places in my city. Once I went into the red light district to hand those gals tracks, which is not what they needed, and that was very unsuccessful. You know, we have this tendency to to reduce, to to domesticate the gospel. Uh, and even in this whole issue of salt and light, it's kind of this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But But the gospel reflecting Jesus was revolutionary. Uh, and and it, it was revolutionary, and it still is, if we'll accept it on Jesus' terms instead of ours. His revolution was built on the greater reality of, of a greater life's purpose, which is the kingdom of God. When Jesus teaches, we'll see it all the way through Matthew, uh, he uses both invitation and challenge in order to move us from where we are to where he's going. 
So these verses about salt and light are, are really the bridge from the Beatitudes, which we looked at last week, to the rest of the sermon. The Beatitudes, as I said to you last week, are not, you should be like this, uh, or if you'll be like this, then you'll be blessed, but rather a declaration of how Jesus sees the real us, how we are when we live from his life in us. Uh, he says these beatitudes are who you really are. They're they're your true identity. They're 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 the identity that Jesus knows us to be. And so he notice first he he takes time to to bring that foundation of blessing and affirmation. And and it's only then that he goes on to give the disciples and us kind of the unvarnished truth. After he's blessed them with holy eternal significance, then he begins to give commands. There's there's an affirmation and then a challenge. And, And remember who he was addressing. These disciples had made the most radical decision imaginable. By answering his call, they'd they'd chosen a whole life of uncertainty and economic insecurity and being misunderstood and being persecuted. They'd chosen that. He had just declared them to to be poor in spirit, to be meek, to be mourners, to be merciful, peacemakers. Jesus was a realist, and he knew that they were going to suffer persecution. But he called them to serve the very world that was about to persecute them. It's interesting because the chapter before in uh, Matthew 4.16, Jesus says, he is the light of the world. John's gospel repeats this a few times. And now there's a shift. He passes on this identity of being the light of the world to the disciples. And he says, and you're a light that cannot be hidden. And and that's really helpful for me because it's a promise whenever I'm feeling intimidated. And, and, and it's a promise for us as God's people, no matter how ineffective or weak we feel, it, it's his commitment that he will be with us and he will make us effective as we follow him. You know, whenever... He calls me to a big challenge that's outside my comfort zone. I'm in a big one right now. Tim and I'll share that later. It's it's huge. I always have to remember who he is and who he says I am. So let's look at these two metaphors of salt and light. He, He used those metaphors to greatly challenge the disciples. And these... These metaphors come with a warning. Um, he, he says that, that we must be fruitful. Remember in John's gospel, Jesus said, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I'm going to draw once again from some church fathers in different ways today. But I want us to get a bigger vision than handing out tracts a bigger vision of this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Uh, It it includes all of that, but that's just like a minuscule little part. And part of this journey into a bigger understanding of of the significance of what Jesus is saying, I I want us 
to see that reflected through some of the early church fathers. Christostom said this really strongly. He said, you are accountable not only for your own life, but also for that of the entire world. Think about that. That's what he is saying he interprets Jesus' words to be. And, you know, that's very consistent with other of the early church fathers. Uh, they insisted together that Jesus was calling his disciples, them and, by extension, us, to a bigger cosmic purpose. They, they saw beyond the natural. Uh, they didn't abandon it. it you know, it, it means being a good witness in your neighborhood, etc. But they saw beyond that to a, a bigger, more mystical meaning and, and the whole purpose behind Jesus' words. Let me give you a couple more quotes. Another one from Christostom. And I often quote him, I, I like Christostom very much, but he, he, wrote, um, he, he wrote an entire uh, book on Matthew, and it's been very helpful. So Christostom paraphrases Jesus this way, I am sending you not to one or two cities, nor to ten or twenty, nor even to one nation, as I sent the prophets. Rather, I am sending you to the entire earth. Origen said that Christ's commission was of such significance and such power that his disciples, as they followed this, were now supporting and holding together this whole earthly realm. Can you imagine that? What does that mean? We're going to go a little further in a minute. The Father's exhorted the church again and again, the greater the undertaking that God gives you, the more zealous you must be. And I know this. I know this from 40 years of ministry. I know that as he calls me further up and further in, as as he leads me to places where I just have to rely on him, there's a zeal. I must operate out of, out of a I hope it's a holy passion, a godly passion for the purposes of God, because without this passion, the undertaking seemed too big. I had a pastor speak this over me once when I was only in my mid-twenties. He quoted Luke 12, 48. He, he said it without any explanation. I was talking to some people. He walked up to me. He said this, and then he said it. And then he said it and he walked away. And this was the verse. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. There is a demand to following Jesus, to being a disciple, to walking in the Jesus way. Why did he demand so much from the disciples and therefore us? Because the stakes are cosmic, they're eternal. The church fathers understood this and insisted again and again that the church understood it too, that we lift up our eyes and see this great cosmic cause. So this takes us a long way from being beyond salt and light at, when I'm at work or when I'm in my neighborhood, although it includes this. Let me say those words from Christostom again. You are accountable not only for your own life, but also for that of the entire world. Now let's look specifically at salt. You are the salt of the earth, literally the salt of the land. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt has two main functions. I think we know that. To flavor and to preserve. We we like to, to various amounts, depending on who we are, we like to flavor our food with salt. And we know that, that salted fish, salted meat preserves. But in order to do this, it must come into contact with its surroundings or it has it has no function. It is not useful. Jesus is telling us that as Christians, uh, if we're not living for and in contact with the people outside of ourselves, we've lost our effectiveness. We've even lost our purpose. I insist that, that the core curriculum, the core direction of the gospel is summed up in the last three verses of Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission. We're here to make disciples. We're here to be those who, who have been rescued to become rescuers. If we are not distinguishable from the world, then we've lost our flavor, he says. We've lost our ability to, to affect, our ability to preserve. The call of Jesus means that either we are the salt of the earth or we are crushed beneath that call. Sadly, I have seen too many men and women crushed beneath that call that, that for various reasons, they they lose the zeal. They begin to, to, to feel it's too much, or they get distracted. I was just thinking about someone today and, and, and how distraction takes us away from that call. However it is, distraction, fear, discouragement, Jesus is saying we lose our savor, our saltiness. Hillary, another one of the church fathers, he sees the flavor of salt as significant. And, and he warns followers of the Jesus way, and I'm going to quote this, to persist in the strength of the power handed over to them. Otherwise, losing their own taste, they're unable to make anything else salty. He also said that the disciples' preaching is the tastiness of surprising heavenly and eternal things. It's, they bring the reality of heaven, in other words. He said that disciples sow immortality on all bodies where their words are sprinkled. You know, it's like in, in uh, Mark 4, I think it's about verse 28, it says about the farmer who scatters the seed and he doesn't know how it happened, but all by itself it produces a crop. The disciples' words, the, their preaching, Yours and mine, they sow immortality, and we don't even know how it happens. Let me go to Christostom one more time in this section. He says this, For by saying you are the salt of the earth, Jesus signifies that all human nature has lost its taste. It took the power of Christ to free men from the corruption caused by sin, it was the task of the apostles through strenuous labor to keep that corruption from returning. Again, folks, the stakes are high. They're eternal. 
And sin really does have a consequence. And that's why Jesus went to the cross, not to make us better people, but but to bring about a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. Now, in the 1980s, there was a book, it's still on my shelf, called Out of the Salt Shaker. And it was a good book, and it encouraged believers to share their faith with others. It encouraged personal evangelism. And that's very true. But I think there's much more to be understood here in these verses. We have been going back most weeks to what we taught you the, the first and second week about, about how to read the scriptures with more understanding, with more depth, as I say, to read them three-dimensionally and not two-dimensionally. We talked about the literal meaning, which is what is the truth that Matthew is trying to convey, and the, and the literal meaning, he, Jesus is, it gave us our identity as salt. We don't have to try to be salt. And, and it literally means that we're here to bring flavor and preservation wherever we con- come in contact with people. That's the literal meaning. i say it again. What is the truth that Matthew is conveying? And then we move from that to the moral meaning. How does this teach me to be more Christ-like? In this case, to be courageous, not to be afraid to share our faith, to be compassionate toward those who don't know him. In other words, to be connected, to persevere and not to stop. But now I want to move from that to the the spiritual or the water to wine or gospel meaning, the eternal meaning, the, the kind of the mystical meaning. Leviticus third book in the Bible. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 13 says this, you shall not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So offerings to the Lord were to be salted. Jesus said in Mark's gospel, verses, uh, not chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, For everyone will be salted with fire, and every sacrifice with salt shall be salted. Literally, that's what it says. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with one another. Colossians, he says, let your speech be seasoned as with salt. Is Jesus connecting our role with uh, with uh, uh, being the salt of the earth that that somehow connects connects us to the offering of people to the Father? Is Jesus somehow saying there's a priestly ministry here that that you are like the the Levitical salt that an offering it must be salted. It's like the connecting. You know, in, in Romans 15, 16, a really fascinating verse, Paul says on this same idea of, of presenting an offering or a sacrifice, um, he, he says that, that I presented to the Lord the sacrifice of the gentles, Gentiles. So there's like a priestly ministry. See, more than leading people to personal salvation— 
We as the body of Christ, as his presence here on earth, are like priests that connect the world to God in an invisible spiritual realm. 1 Peter 2.9 says we are a royal priesthood. Justin Martyr, another one of the early church fathers, second century, he said, we are the true high priestly race of God, as even God himself bears witness, saying that in every place among the Gentiles, sacrifices are presented to him, well-pleasing and pure. Now God receives sacrifices from no one except through his priests. I think there is this this eternal realm. I think that there is a priestly ministry, and Jesus is getting at that when he says, you are the salt of the earth. We don't just represent the world uh, to to God by being Christ-like in how we live. We carry with us, Paul says, the fragrance of Christ. Um, I love that, 2 Corinthians 2.14, we carry with us the fragrance of Christ. In other words, salt makes the offering of the Gentiles acceptable by somehow changing its nature. If you, if you, look, at, at, uh, if you look at 1 Timothy, you look at Titus, the pastoral epistles, there's a hint of this here that, 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 that the believing wife somehow changes the nature of of her husband. So in this way, salt speaks of more than being witnesses that lead others to personal salvation. It's bigger. It is, I believe, about the restoration of all creation. Romans 8.19, all of creation groans, waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. In other words, it is groaning at, at this invisible cosmic level. I believe uh, as I have studied and prayed and said, Lord, what is the, the water to wine message you're giving me here? He, he just took me deeper and deeper and deeper. So by sharing my own journey, I hope that helps you as you begin to read the scriptures in, in new ways. Well, moving on, Jesus also says there's a warning here. If salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus means to shake up the disciples here and us with the seriousness of this call. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, says it is not for disciples to decide if they will be salt. Jesus says they already are salt that disciples must respond to Jesus' call of being what he says they already are. Otherwise, they're not followers of Jesus. Those are strong words. One of the themes we're going to see again and again with Matthew is our discipleship is lived out with action. It's not what we, it's not believing in a right doctrine, but it's living rightly. So look at the, let's look at the second metaphor. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Light obviously stands in contrast to darkness. It also dispels the darkness. 
Hillary saw it this way, the light of understanding versus the darkness of ignorance. In Scripture, light is the symbol for truth. Um, First John tells us to walk in the light with one another. This is a mark of Christ's new community. So there's a twofold meaning here. We're not to hide our true identity as disciples of Christ, but also there's a promise. He will not, after calling us and capturing our heart, he's not going to hide us away. Sometimes we can be afraid that we're being passed by or hidden away. This is a promise. No, I'm never going to do that. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says this, I've given you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to, the, to uh, open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the, deci- uh, the prisoners from the dungeon and, the, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. It's our calling to be a light to the nation. He says, see that your works give glory to God. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount shows us how, in some very practical and very challenging ways, what these good works look like. So he says, you're the light of the world. Remember, we looked back in chapter 4 on a, on a, a prophetic passage that says, uh, to Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. So Jesus is pointing to the Gentile mission. He's looking to when the gospel will go to the whole world. It starts in Galilee, starts with the Gentiles, it goes through Judea, Israel, and then it goes to the whole world. Now let's do it again. Let's go a little deeper. Let's go to the water to wine reading. Jesus told us in John, I'm the light of the world. And now, as I said, he projects that on, that identity on to all of us who will follow him. Origen said this, another great church father, Jesus is the source of light, like the sun, and he calls us as those who reflect his light, like the moon. So we want to look beyond and build upon the literal meaning Again, that is, what is the truth that Matthew is conveying? And the moral meaning, how does this teach me to be more Christ-like? I'm repeating this purposely because I want it to get into our hearts and our minds as we read the scriptures. How do we move through that to that water-to-wine meaning? No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. St. Augustine asked, what is the bushel? He said, the bushel is the safety for believers of staying inside the church. Isn't that interesting? He says, if we stay inside the church, indeed, that is the bushel basket that hides us. But then in another place, the same St. Augustine said, the bushel is the things that we accumulate. And to put light under the bushel is to hide the truth of the gospel under worldly advantages. Now, I've, I've said to you a couple of times that we need to be set free from the modern dualism that we've been taught to read the Bible for what's right. What's the right answer? It's either this is the right meaning or that's the right meaning. Instead of embracing 
the mystery of multiple depths of meaning. We're in a culture, and the church is in a culture that finds security and certainty, but we're called to a life of faith, not certainty. So there's multiple depths of meaning. Chromatius, another church father I like very much, he understood this. He said the lamp could be understood differently since the spiritual understanding is many-faceted. Here's another aspect of the light. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi 4 verse 2 says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The Son of Righteousness is Christ's true unveiled identity. It's like the, 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 the Shekinah glory that was on him at the Mount of Transfiguration. The Son of Righteousness is his true identity. Now, a lamp, he talks about a lamp, uh, a lamp is smaller than the sun, of course. And, you know, some of the church fathers thought that Christ was the lamp, that it reflects Christ's humility. His, we're back to that word, kenosis, his emptying and coming to earth. Thus, the lamp speaks of the incarnation spoken of by the prophets, no longer hidden in the preaching of the Old Testament law as if covered by a bushel. It is now out in the open. You are the salt. You are the light. It's really important for us to understand, especially with our individualistic frame of reference, you are is very emphatically plural. Community is the context for these metaphors. The way we relate to one another and our surroundings in community is meant to be attractive, is meant to be a light. This is why I'm so committed to the beauty of authentic life together. We we often have have uh, another believer living with us. We've done that for over 35 years. We're doing that right now. And it's little, but it's it's a flavor of that. It's when, as we come out of COVID, we'll be back to having people gathering around our tables. There's something that is beautiful in our authentic life together, and it is very attractive. That was the case in the early church, Acts 2, 42 to 47, and the Lord added to their number daily because there was this beautiful attractiveness like a city or a community on a hill. The key to being effective change agents is to be different from our surroundings, to be countercultural but not subcultural. Subcultural is we hide back and we live in our own little world. Countercultural is, is we're salt and light living in another way. And disciples, these verses tell us that we, we have to accept responsibility to be distinct. To be distinct. Disciples realize that the world needs us. And we cannot fail the world as salt and light. In our individualized paradigm for discipleship, it's so easy to miss the strength and the encouragement and, frankly, the creativity of being salt and light in a corporate sense. Followers of the Jesus way are a visible community. The church fathers understood that that as followers of the way, we were a living prophecy of God's ultimate purpose.
So salt and light speak of both proclamation and demonstration of the gospel and the preservation of salt that is social action and justice. There's that whole side. Isaiah 51.4, listen to me, my people, and give heed to me, my nation, for a teaching will go out from me and my justice for a light to the people. To be salt and light is not a nice feeling. It's not an idea. It requires engagement. We're, we're not to be judges or prognosticators. We're to be engaged at salt and light. Instead of so easily expressing our opinion about refugees, we need to help them. Instead of talking about poverty, we need to go to the poor with food and with clothing. Walter Brueggemann, perhaps the, the, the foremost living Old Testament scholar, said this, The role of the church is to change the conversation away from greed and fear and violence. Instead, we proclaim their opposites, generosity, trust, and peacemaking. If our gospel faith is authentically biblical, then it must be about extending ourselves for the sake of our neighbors and our community. Followers of the Jesus way are walking a radically different path. We determine to live generous lives, especially at a time when when others most need us. Followers of the Jesus way bring this reality into every sphere of the community. The, the relational sphere, the economic, the social. This is the role of the church. Folks, this is not about being liberal or progressive or socialist or conservative. Those aren't biblical terms. What he calls us to is to live biblically. This is what it means to be change agents, to be agents of healing. This is what Jesus calls salt and light. Our cities are segregated economically, racially. This segregation defines where we go, who we interact with, where we spend our time. Therefore, if we're going to be salt and light, we're going to be engaged. And that requires a deliberate choice, a shifting of my priorities, a shifting of the movement of my life. So folks, Just like Jesus challenged the disciples 2,000 years ago, he challenges us now. This is not a feeling or, oh, I believe that this is making it practical. This affects the decisions of, of who I'm going to spend my time with, where I'm going to spend my time, and on and on. Righteousness is to be lived out. You see, the, his commands... Keep the church morally serious. We need to embrace these commands. The Sermon on the Mount is not a collection of suggestions, and sadly, it has been seen that way. The early church did not respond to this future hope by simply waiting and praying and saying, God, you need to break in, they proactively put the ethics of the kingdom into practice. And the result was a new kind of community. Well, now we need to shift gears, and I need to keep going pretty quickly.
because now we come to the next section, and these two passages, what we just did and we're about to do uh, 17 to 20, are really compressed. We'll be able to go quicker after today, but these are really important. So starting chapter 5, 17 and 18, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This whole issue of what Jesus meant here, that he didn't come to abolish but to fulfill, has filled scores of books. But the first thing I want to notice is that Jesus, what he says, do not think he's addressing a suspicion that was already out there that he's setting aside the law, that that he's saying the kingdom has come, you don't, there's no place for the law. He's come to create a community that hears and does the will of God. Church fathers recognized a deep continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They viewed Jesus as the perfect and complete revelation of God in human history. Jesus is the revealer of the Old Testament. It's Jesus who gives definitive meaning not only to the Scripture, but also to all of human history. Matthew is aware that there's like two opposite tendencies. One is say, oh, we don't need the law at all anymore. It's got no relevance in our lives. Or that for some of us who are wired more as rule keepers, then then we kind of emulate the scribes and the Pharisees by observing every detail of the law. So what's our way through this? Well, the key to this is what Jesus meant when he said fulfilling the law. Jesus' role is to bring into being um, what the law pointed toward. Since Jesus is the one to whom the law and prophets point, therefore he is their only uh, authoritative interpreter. Now, when I say law and prophets, very quickly, just so we're all clear, um, it, it, the Old Testament was was in three sections, three types. One is the, the law of doctrinal teaching. Uh, and the doctrinal teaching was only partial revelation. Jesus brought um, these doctrines to completion through his person and teaching and work. The second uh, is the prophets, predictive prophecy. His life and ministry fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament. Remember, I've said to you before, that's why Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, says this was to fulfill what was written. But the third aspect of the law is the moral law of God. And Jesus obeyed this with perfect obedience. Remember right at the beginning when he was baptized, and John the Baptist says, you don't need to be baptized. He says, yes, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus has come to fulfill the law by interpreting it. His command to love God and love people is at the center it's the, it's the point of understanding for all of what he teaches. He exercises freedom within the law. He says, you've heard it said, but I say. So the next thing to understand is the word fulfill. 
So if that's what the law, what, what does it mean to fulfill it? It's really the key word to understanding this whole passage. Um, Jesus is what the Old Testament pointed to. His teaching will transcend the Old Testament revelation, but but will not abolish it. Rather, it's 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 the Old Testament's culmination. There was a, a 19th century Church of England bishop, Ryle, and he said the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. By the word, by the way, the word in Greek that Jesus used for fulfill means to accomplish, to bring out the full meaning. So in Christ, God's great story has has come to completion. He is the central story of the Old Testament. This would have been shocking to his Jewish listeners that that, uh, he's telling them he fulfills every sense, every detail of what the law and the prophets anticipated. And he reveals that he is the face of the law. Now, when he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, we have to, in our day, pay really close attention to that. We need to be careful about any teaching that sets Jesus against the Old Testament. The Old Testament was Jesus' library. Jesus came to fulfill Scripture by his own deeper obedience to it and by his own deeper interpretation. He never stood apart from the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to get into it in a few minutes, but as we learn more and more to see Jesus through the Old Testament, we see he's completely intertwined with it. Verse 19, Therefore, anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great, in the kingdom of heaven. What are these least commands? Some people think that they're referring to the Old Testament commandments. Others see the least is referring to Jesus' own commands. I think there's a, a clue for us at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission, where he says, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He probably means teach them to respect my commands, even the ones that seem least significant. He regards the Old Testament highly, but he is Lord over it, and he gives the disciples an important and respectful freedom with it. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Think how shocking this would be to his Jewish listeners, because it was the scribes and the Pharisees, their, their role, their responsibility was to interpret and preserve the law. It, it would be like, like saying nowadays, uh, yeah, equating that to to professors of biblical studies and, and theology in our seminaries. And Jesus says that that this kind of approach that that the righteousness must surpass the Pharisees and the scribes that that that, that approach they have won't even get them into the kingdom. So how on earth can our righteousness ever surpass these most seriously religious people. 
Well, the key is in interpretation. Jesus profoundly disagreed again and again through the Gospels with the interpretation they gave of the law, but he never disagreed with their acceptance of its authority. Let me give you a great example, Matthew 23, 23. He's talking about quality, not quantity. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Do you see, Jesus is presenting us with a deeper righteousness, a righteousness of the heart that pleases God because it reflects our true mind and motive. He's saying that the good news is that the kingdom of heaven is available to anyone who will respond to it. He's saying that God's saving, renewing, restoring activity has arrived on the earth to deliver his people, and it is this that produces a radical change in our lives, not law-keeping. Life in the kingdom of the heavens operates from the inside out, not the outside in. Psalm 51, 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Folks, in religion... In the religiousness that's in me, that's probably to some degree in most of us, there's always a strong tendency to reverse this. The assumption is that if, if we, if we're diligent enough, if we work hard enough to, to clean up the outside, the inside will become clean. I even heard teaching like that. Do the right thing and eventually your heart will be right. But, but this isn't it. And this is, this is what Jesus is trying to say in fulfilling law. It's a law of the heart. It's inside out work. That's what takes us back to the Beatitudes. That's what takes us back to a place of, of vulnerable, raw intimacy with the Lord that he's got to change me on the inside and he keeps changing me and changing me and it's not going to stop this side of heaven. But that's the key. Eyes fixed on him, not on trying harder. Jesus finished with the warning. The purpose of Scripture is not so much right doctrine as a personal obedience to it. And we're going to learn through the sermon the much more of personal righteousness that's demanded of us and will always drive us back to the Beatitudes. We're going to learn things about having his heart for the poor and the needy. We're going to learn that, that, that he desires mercy and not religious activity. We're going to learn that we come as little children. We're going to learn that we come with humility. We're going to learn that we come willing to suffer with him. Our seeking will always be inadequate. Always. And it will drive us back to the grace of the Beatitudes. Because our inescapable weakness in keeping his commandments as they deserve. So, let's wrap this up. It's been very full today. All the Old Testament remains relevant for Jesus' disciples. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach. But it cannot be rightly interpreted until we see how it has been fulfilled in Christ 
Every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of Jesus' life and ministry and the changes introduced by the new covenant that he set in place. So let me finish with giving you a couple of practical things. One, remember being salt and light means engagement, not a good attitude. Secondly, more and more, ask God to teach us how to see him, how to see Jesus Christ, the the second person of the Trinity, to see Christ throughout the Old Testament. The more we do this, the more we'll see him, and the more we will seek the continuity and the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the more we we will avoid seeing a contrast or a conflict that there's fulfillment or abolishment. No, is Christ is in all of it. In a moment, Tim and I are going to sit and talk through some of these things. I've got some things I'd, I'd love to chat about, especially around salt and light. But uh, God bless you. So so stick with us, and uh, there's a short video, and then we'll, we'll be together. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, that was seven verses from the fire hose. <laughs> it was, I'm afraid. Yeah. Otherwise, I, we're going to be in Matthew for five years. Forever. We'll never get out and of I'm it. already getting older. <laughs> um, maybe in just a second, I'll let you fit in one last point. If there was anything that you, because I know you had to carve lots out in, in order to kind of fit this into the one hour time constraints that, that we've put upon you. Um, but if there was anything that was one last little thought that you wanted to fit in, you're welcome to. Um just before we do that, you referenced something as you were teaching about um, something that's coming up next week that we've been working on really hard here. So I just wanted to give our listeners a heads up on this. Um, one of the one of the amazing things about the Impact Nations family is that we really are family. Um, I I love the podcast because it's one more opportunity for for us to tell people about uh, what other members of their family are up to, uh, and. From time to time, we get a chance to hear directly from our partners who are in the front lines of ministry doing the stuff day in and day out. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Annabelle right here in this space. Um, next week's another one of those times. We have invited Randeep uh, to uh, join us for, I was going to say an evening, but we've actually got three different time slots available. But this is going to be a Zoom gathering where Randeep can give us an update on all that's going on in India, I, uh, I'm sure that all of our listeners are aware that things in India are not good right now in regards to the pandemic. Um, the uh, It's just come, this second wave has come so strong that the government's really had a hard time keeping up. Uh, they're looking at lack of oxygen for COVID patients and things like that. So uh, Randeep and his team, uh, as 
I'm sure our listeners know, for the last year and a bit, probably the last 15 months, have been out there every single day feeding people in the pandemic. Uh, but their efforts are about to ramp up again uh, into something new that, that we've not done before. So Randeep would like to tell us a little bit about that. We're going to have a Zoom gathering three times next week so that people have an opportunity to ask questions, to just hear directly from Randeep, uh, even an opportunity just to pray over him and things like that. So um in fact, Randeep's recorded just a brief video uh, to invite people to that. So, Isaiah, if you'd like to just play that for us real quick. Greetings, friends, in the mighty and the most precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As you must be aware of the current situation in India, uh, where the second wave of Corona has hit India like a tsunami. And there is deaths, there are people needing help people waiting for medicine and oxygen. And the government has asked the NGOs to come forward and be a help. So uh, I just want to thank you, first of all, for always standing with us and supporting us. And now, you know, is the time that uh, we need more of your help. Uh, you can partner with us and you can, you can help us save lives. As government has taken this initiative by inviting NGOs to come and partner with them to help the people uh, who are in need of help. So I, I, I request all of you to come to listen to me uh, on Impact Nations, uh, where, where I'll be sharing about the current uh, situation and how you can help us save lives. Thank you so much. So there you have it, a personal invite uh, from Randeep to you. Uh, and if you think he's not talking to you, he's talking to you. <laughs> He'd like to see you there. We'd like to see you there. Um, you know, one of the difficulties over the pandemic is we haven't been able to travel together. Journeys of Compassion are usually an amazing way for the Impact Nations family to, to be together, and we haven't had that opportunity. But uh, this is going to be a really powerful time. So uh, there are three times listed. If you go to impactnations.com slash Randeep, uh, there's a very simple sign-up form there. It'll take you 30 seconds. You can do it right now. I give you permission. Uh, hit pause. Go do that. Impactnations.com slash Randeep. Uh, and select from one of those three times. We've worked very hard to have three different days at three different times to accommodate for different time zones, work schedules, things like that. Um, I'm really looking forward to that time. Yeah, I am too. Um, yeah, that Wednesday, we talked about that quite a bit. It, we've got a, a number of people in, in the UK and in Europe and in Africa, and they miss out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on lots of stuff this time they won't miss out indeed indeed so all of the times listed on their website on that website are uh, in mountain daylight time which is uh, the time that we like to go by here so uh, you can just get onto google and figure out what time that is in your part of the world so yeah um com slash randy please don't miss it uh we really would love to have you there this uh, really ties in with um you know, Randeep did that for us. That's hot off the press. That was this morning. Yes. And uh, I'd already written most of what I was going to teach, and, and it ties right in with this, um, the Zoom meetings with the issue of engagement. Mm. Not, not feeling good or bad or sad or happy, but engagement. Jesus calls disciples to live engaged lives. So when you say engagement... Are you, is that a polite way of saying do something? Yeah, it's a pretty good way. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, I I love in uh, Luke 10, he finishes the story of the Good Samaritan, and then he says, now you go and do hmm. likewise. Yeah. He didn't say, think about this, feel bad about this, go and do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the great... That's the great dividing line, Tim. You know, over the years, it's getting to be lots of years now <laughs> as I as I have done conferences and been in more churches than I can remember. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is hard for me is when I see really nice people who love Jesus but have 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 never engaged. It's just let's have another Bible class, let's take another course yeah. that you know, following Jesus, as you've heard me say before, um, sorry, folks, but following Jesus is not about singing songs about following him yeah. or even having prayer meetings about following him. I yeah. love to worship. I love to pray. But ultimately, following Jesus means he's on the move. And uh, and right now, we're 16 years Impact Nations, yeah, and and this issue in uh, the scale of this issue in India mm-hmm. is bigger than anything we've encountered. We we got into Zimbabwe when there was a terrible um, cholera crisis yeah. that killed thirty thousand people, and uh, the Lord opened doors. And, you know that's about oh eight or oh nine, and it was like I can't believe it. This is too big, yeah. But it wasn't, as I said. Well, we'll do what we can. Mm-hmm. And and it just ramped up and up and up. Uh, earthquake in Nepal, typhoons yeah. in in uh, Philippines, a couple of them. But it's it's more and more. And as we follow, there is an empowering in following. There's something supernatural. And this this is by its scale probably the biggest because, yeah. as you pointed out, although the official is about 4,500 a day. You only officially die of COVID if you're in the hospital, yeah. but there's not been beds for there's weeks. There's no space in the hospital. So they yeah. think it's probably 25,000 a day. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, this this is about engagement, but I'd already determined that before this. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you've kind of already answered a little bit, but let's, let's get even more practical here. You've answered a question I was going to ask, and we'll jump right into this. Uh, a lot of our listeners, I know this for a fact, that many of them are friends of mine, uh, are leaders in their church, whether they're pastors, small group leaders, things like that. They they hold a place of leadership and they're leading a community. You talked about the plural nature of that, that pronoun you, it's it's the use guys again, uh, when he's calling people into a community of salt and light. Yes. Uh, Speak to those leaders for a minute who are leading a community. How do you talked about the difference between uh, the danger of being a subculture versus being countercultural? Can you just give some practical ideas to a leader who says, "I I don't want to be a subculture. I want to be countercultural. I want to lead people in engagement." What are some ideas they can do as they're okay. leading their community? One of the first things is um, Jesus never pointed the way; mm. he led the way. Yeah. And a thing I've taught pastors all over the world, and sometimes they get very uncomfortable, but frankly, I don't care, (laughs) um, is the people following you will not ultimately do what you say. They will do what they see you doing. And so um, if this is something that you've not done before, 
then go out with one or two. Uh, don't go alone. Go out with one or two and try it. Do something. And then go back and say, hey, folks, let's go. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's extremely important. The longer you keep people in the chairs, the harder it is to get them out of the chairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, in if you're leading a group or a church and there's new people, the, the new people are always the most responsive. Um, so it's making it practical. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be huge. I'm going to go out tomorrow night uh, into a um, you know a poor part, what they call the International District, and, and Christina and I are going to go with a few others. And we're going to make some suppers, and we're going to feed them, and we're going to be with them and pray with them. That isn't rocket science, yeah. but it leads me out of my white middle-class neighborhood yeah. into a very multicultural, uh, lower socioeconomic mm-hmm. place. That's engagement. It's a decision. Yeah. And I only use that because there's nothing heroic. You know, that's our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm going to, you know... Let myself be exposed to give examples to those leaders, to those people out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was leading a, uh, I was leading a, a men's thing. Just happened. A bunch of men said, "Oh, could would you disciple us?" And uh, several years ago in this city, and we met on a Monday night, and I said, "Now we're going to meet again Saturday." So we'd had one time yeah. of you know the usual round look at the Bible. And on Saturday, I took him under the bridge, mm-hmm. one of the bridges, and we ministered to the homeless. And they were shocked. That you would take them out that quickly? Or? Only five days. <laughs> but but it's it's go and learn. Yeah. And guess what? I think three of them, if I recall, took their own families out within wow. the next week or two. Wow. Yeah. Very quickly, touch again on subcultural. What do you mean by that? Like, uh, because I, I think there's a warning there too, because we can slip into something that's very, we might think is countercultural, but it's not. It's very <laughs> subcultural. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a warning. We always have to watch, mm-hmm. you know, this was really, I was in a subculture 30, 35 years ago and didn't know it. Here are the signs. Uh, we think dualistically of them and us. Uh. We think of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. We think of, um, you you can be like us, you can be part of us, <laughs> if you will talk like us, think like us, and look like us, then you can be us. Yeah. That's subcultural. If you find that people are spending all their time with the people in their culture, in their church, mm-hmm. in their house churches, if they're spending all their time with them, subculture, baby. Yeah. Does that mean I don't want to spend time with them? Of course I do. <laughs> but I say, let's be salt and light. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one last question. Uh, you talked about the high cost of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, and I've asked this question before, but I'm not a good listener, so give it to me again. Do we run the risk of a bait and switch if we're, if we're sharing the gospel, if we're inviting people into an eternal life in Christ, uh, and we're not talking about counting the cost up front, uh, are we in danger of inviting him into something that we haven't actually painted a good picture of. That's... And at what point during the, 
I was going to say transaction. That's not a fair word. But it, at what point during this invitation journey, which may very well be more, much more than a 15-minute presentation of the gospel, which sometimes is all we've got when we're on a journey of compassion and we're you know, speaking from a stage or something. But during this invitational journey, at what point is it appropriate to start talking about counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? I think that's a great question, and I, I could answer it in so many ways. One, if it's classic proclamation, journey of compassion, I'm standing out or you're standing out in a field, um, we we must never bypass the cross yeah. and make it clear we're following the one who laid down his life, it cost him everything. And so we need to at least understand that much of mm-hmm. counting the cost. But secondly, I think the most effective and frankly, the most biblical way by and large, that's the most biblical, not the only biblical, yeah. is uh, is the whole belonging before believing, is the mm-hmm. coming into these communities of salt and light and watching and becoming part of a life like, oh man, they're they're laying down their lives in some practical ways. That's kind of a big statement, but they're instead of hanging out watching TV, they're going downtown and, and feeding people, or they're yeah. da, 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 da. they begin to see that in tangible ways. And that's the counterculture versus subculture. Because if you invite them into something that's just like, wow, these people just only talk one way, or they, you know, if you're not holding the Bible, you can't be a part of the group. Yeah. Uh, versus, wow, these guys live their life differently. Yes. Out there. Yeah. So that's absolutely it. <laughs> I also just want to highlight, and I'm trying to find words always yeah. for this, this, we'll use Brad's term, water to wine reading, mm-hmm. that the New Testament is, in essence, much more mystical than we will allow it to be, because as I've said last two weeks, we, we find security in certainty. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I really do believe in this going deeper, layer by layer, but going deeper and you keep going. Remember I gave an example today, St. Augustine had two different things. But of course, the Holy Spirit spoke to him one time about this, have you thought about this? Mm -hmm. And another time, have you thought about that? And uh, that's been very much my experience recently, by the way. But I want to encourage people in that because we can begin to embrace some mystery. And... um, and the gospel's full of mystery. It's yeah. full of mystery from beginning to end. Uh, well, I almost got into eschatology, <laughs> but I won't. All right. We better stop here before we get into eschatology. We don't want to go down that rabbit trail. Um, it's a good trail. It is. Uh, and maybe we can talk about it's it later. It's really long, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for this teaching. Thank you for... Uh, given us the the fire hose of those seven verses uh next week we continue on the sermon on the mount uh and you you were saying things kind of shift from here just yeah, in terms of do. pacing we, a bit. we now get the what it means that he is a fulfillment you've mm. heard it said but i say yeah. and frankly it's not as condensed every verse yeah. as what we just came through okay uh so come back. Uh, we're here every Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time uh, on YouTube Live. If you can't catch us live, we're still on YouTube after the fact, of course. We've got a playlist. You can watch them all in order right there. Uh, if you are listening uh, just to the audio in our podcast feed, please uh, 
if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you get that sent to your device every single week. Uh, they're usually up, uploaded to uh, to that feed within a few hours, really. Uh, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to write us to podcast at impactnations.com, any questions you have, we're going to talk about them right here in this space. Um, I, it would really help us uh, if you could share this. It'll help you, too, because you could win a gift card. Uh you share the YouTube feed, share your podcast feed, whatever it is. You start talking about the Impact Nations podcast in your social media. Uh, tag us with hashtag Impact Nations, and you will be automatically entered to win a $40 gift card. Uh, we're looking forward to awarding that very soon. Um, oh, and give us a five-star review, too, in your favorite podcast app, because that really helps, too. People That's do great. discover us that way. That's great. Um Please, if you do anything right now as we finish up, go to impactnations.com slash randeep, sign yourself up. You know what? Heck, sign up a few friends too, even those who aren't sure. Show them what countercultural looks like. Show them what's happening in India and how followers of Jesus are following him running into the darkness uh, at their own personal cost, huge personal cost. Impactnations.com slash Randeep, and uh, we will see you there. Uh, you and I, Isaiah, will be there. Uh, I think all three of those events uh, that is uh, Mountain Daylight Time, that's Tuesday night, that's Wednesday morning, and that's Thursday evening. Uh, and we'd love to see you there. We're looking forward to it. Impactnations.com slash Randeep. Thanks again. Have a great week. Yeah. God bless. Bye bye.